0: Welcome to the St. Matt's 6 pm
1: podcast,
0: where you can listen to sermons from our evening service.
2: The first reading for tonight is from Isaiah 9, verses 1 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. John 1, verses 1 to
1: 13. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God.
0: A couple of great passages from the scriptures, aren't they? Let me pray as we look together, particularly at Isaiah chapter 9. Let me pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have now to pause and to reflect on your word, to listen to you speak. I pray that I won't get in the way. So help me to be clear and careful with your word and faithful to what you've said. But I pray especially that tonight as we hear about things that were first heard thousands of years ago, I pray that our hearts would be softened, our minds opened, and our lives change by what we hear. I pray that this would be a change that happens because you've spoken. Amen. Now we read in Isaiah, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Um, it's a magnificent set of words, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful sentence. Handel, the great musician, took a lot of these passages from Isaiah and sent them to music. The famous um, Messiah, handles Messiah. Has anybody heard that? Sung it? It is just magnificent. The problem is when you get really familiar with words, you kind of just take them for granted and you don't really know what they mean. For example, the people walking in darkness have seen a great... What, what people? Who are the people he's talking about? Who are the people walking in darkness? Who are they? And what is the great light? Now, if you've been hanging around church for a while, you've probably got some answers to that. But I would suggest that if I were to get you up here and quiz you on them, they would probably only show that you can do a Sunday school answer. You know what the Sunday school answer is, right? Our God, Jesus, because he loves me. That's it. It'll get you through every quiz that you've got to do. Yeah, the people in darkness, that's all the people in sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the light, well, that's God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is it? Like what is being said here and why would it be so profound that these words would have rattled through the centuries so that they are so powerful they've brought change to people's lives? What is it about this? Who are the people in darkness? What is the darkness? Who are the people who have found the light? What is the light? It's funny you know when uh, people come to faith, I guess In in modern times, at least since the back end of the 20th century, uh, there's been that expression, they've seen the light. And it's usually a joke. A friend of mine who's a magistrate, uh, it became known that he was a Christian in his courtroom. And uh, after a little while, just about everybody who was appearing before him would turn up, he said, wearing massive crosses and saying that they'd seen the light. And realising that they'd heard that he was a Christian and they're trying to get a lighter sentence, he started saying, so what light did you see? And they'd stand there in the dock going, uh, 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 looking at their, their lawyer trying to work out, uh, I didn't get the answer to that question. What am I supposed to say? But what does it mean to see the light? A friend of mine flies a small plane. He was out in remote Western Australia, right up in the northwest corner. And he was flying at night. He's, he's uh, got the qualifications to fly at night. But he got lost. And he said, I was looking for a beacon. And he said, I tell you what, there's nothing like being in a small plane in a black sky when you realise you're lost, when you suddenly see that beacon. Nobody was laughing when he landed that plane. That beacon in that, in that darkness was just life-saving. Or Tony Bullimore. Do you know Tony Bullimore? He's a a British sailor. He he really enjoyed sailing around the world by himself in yacht races. He was in one race, solo, around the world when he decided to take a shortcut from the bottom of South Africa and cut across the top of Antarctica to get to uh, the bottom of South America and take like like a shortcut to get in, in the lead in the race. But the oceans down there are treacherous. So dangerous, the waves so big, so strong, that they knocked the mast off his yacht. And if that's not bad enough, then took the keel off his yacht. And if you know anything about sailing, lose your mast, lose your keel, you are basically a cork, if you're lucky, if it doesn't sink. And so he was trapped in an upturned boat, just hiding under the hole in the darkness, being thrown around in the Great Southern Ocean. When the Australian Navy sent out a ship to find him, they found him, too dangerous uh, to take the ship close, so they got an inflatable boat. Sailors got into the inflatable boat, knocked on the hull of the boat. He came through out of the darkness, into the light, and he hugged these ugly sailors, and he gave them the biggest kiss. You can imagine, he saw the light. You know what? Nobody laughed at that. You see, when you realise how dangerous the darkness is, you won't think it's a joke to say you've seen the light. When you understand how deadly darkness is, you won't think it's a joke or a small thing to see the light. Darkness in the Bible is never a safe thing or a good thing. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the very second verse in the Bible, like the Bible's just opened and it speaks of darkness. Do you remember that? A darkness covered the earth. It represents chaos. It represents disorder. It represents emptiness. That's what darkness is. Chaos, disorder, emptiness. And then in verse 3, God creates light and the first thing it said is, it was good. Light, good. Darkness, bad. In Exodus, there were the plagues. Remember that? And one of the plagues, darkness. In the Psalms, God lightens darkness. His word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, because his word gets rid of ignorance and danger. So darkness is ignorance, danger, spiritual chaos and doom. In Joel, the Prophet Joel's book, it's it's judgment. Same in Amos and Zephaniah. You keep reading through the Old Testament and you'll see that darkness is never treated lightly. It is incredibly dangerous. It is incredibly bad. In Psalm twenty three, probably the most famous Psalm in all the Bible, we read about the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death. That's the darkness. And Isaiah, in his prophecy, in his book, he lists darkness as being distress, gloom and anguish. You got the picture? The people that are walking in distress, gloom, chaos, under the shadow of death, a light has has shone. Now, Isaiah was a prophet, a prophet. What does your mind conjure up when you think of the word prophet? If I said um, someone here is a prophet, what would you expect them to be able to do? Probably tell the future, right? That's what prophets are famous for, telling you what's going to happen, what's going to come. And there is some truth to that. God did inspire prophets to see and to speak about what was to come. His plans, his purposes, uh, sometimes... That involved pretty hard messages of a judgment that was coming. But the prophets would still speak of it. At the same time, it's important to remember prophets also look back to what God had already revealed. For centuries, God had been teaching his people all kinds of things through the prophets. And they, as their role would dictate, would remind people of what God had said. So a prophet can be someone who actually reminds you of what God said and what he's done. In the Old Testament, the prophets are often the ones who reminded people that God had been leading them, caring for them, that he'd set up a relationship with them based on a covenant, an agreement, pledges, promises. I recently married a couple, last last weekend actually, last Saturday. Um, a young couple uh, that uh, I knew their parents, I've known Uh, Them since, well, him since he was born. So it was a real privilege to do that. But you know what the heart of a marriage is? A covenant. That's the way God relates to us through covenant. And just like in a marriage that's based on promises, God relates to us based on promises. God has set up his relationship with his people based on a series of promises, a series of covenants. Remember Noah. What was the covenant sign? Not a rhetorical question. You can join in. Rainbow. Rainbow. You got it? Yeah, very good. Abraham. What was the covenant sign? Yeah, we're in mixed company. It was circumcision. We may not be mentioning that one. <laughs> and then there was Moses. And the covenant sign was the law with commands, promises, instructions. And God's promises have always been accompanied by signs that point out A promise. The promise to Noah, the promise to Abraham, the promise to Moses. The regulations of marriage covenant are pretty similar too. They're based on promises. And I figure that there may be a few married couples here. And I figured that if we can remember the covenant promises from Noah and from Abraham and from Moses, then the married couples here would no doubt be able to stand and recite the promises that they exchanged when they got married, off by heart. Right? No. (laughs) Let me remind you. Let me remind you. you This goes like this. Couples, when they get married, promise to live together according to God's law, to honour each other as husband and wife, and forsaking all others, love and protect each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Is this ringing a bell? In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish each other as long as they both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. Remember? Yeah, I can, I can just see the, the eyes linking and connecting. <laughs> How devastating it is when couples decide to ignore those promises. It was devastating for God's people when they decided to ignore God's promises. So the prophets, yes, some of them saw the future, but the prophets quite often would come and simply remind people of the promises that they had made to God. The promises that he had made to them. Do you remember? Do you remember? I remember 22nd of May, 1982, 4pm, don't be late, I was there, I made those promises. God remembers the promises he has made to his people. But throughout the history of God's people, you see this recurring pattern of people ignoring God and forgetting the promises that they've made to him and walking away. And that walking away means that they go walking into the darkness. They are the ones walking in darkness. God sends his prophets as mediators to explain the consequences of doing that, the consequences of unfaithfulness, of rebellion. And the prophets would then summon people to repent, come back. Do the mediation work. Come back to God. Change. It's really interesting in our service tonight, in a little while, I'm going to ask each of the five people down the front if they want to follow Christ. And then the next question I ask is, do you repent? Do you change? Are you willing to walk away from sin and walk into obedience with Jesus? That's the first question. It is a, it's a profound question. Now, the answer is written in the service sheet that they've got. <laughs> I, I guess they'll get it right. But what about for you? I think it's an important question. Isaiah came to his people and asked whether they were willing to repent. Isaiah, as a prophet uh, living about 750 years before Jesus. He was in a place called Judah. Judah was really two states in southern Israel. If you know the map at all, Yeah, it's from Jerusalem and down around to the coast. And he went to them and he said, repent. Recommit yourselves to God because you guys have ignored him. You've been living in ways where you're really treating him like he doesn't even exist. And when he does that, when Isaiah goes with that message, he actually already knows that people will ignore him. But he doesn't nonetheless. And I think there's an example there for each of us. You go and tell your non-Christian friends, the people that don't yet know who Jesus is, that they need to repent and most people will ignore you. But like Isaiah, don't just give up because they ignore you. Keep, Keep asking. Why? Because living in step with God, following Jesus is the only way to life. We'll come back to that in a moment. Isaiah tells God's people what God is about to do. There is an immediate future and there's a more distant future for them. The immediate future? Well, he says to them, there is a grave risk coming from up near Turkey at the nation of Assyria The ancient nation of Assyria was a major power. It had an incredible war machine and they were heading south. They wanted trade routes that would take them to the coast and connect them with Egypt, which basically meant they had to take out everyone and anyone that was living between them and Egypt. That included Judah, Israel and Aram. So Isaiah goes to his people and he says the king Of Assyria is going to come down. He goes to the king of Judah, a man named Ahaz, and he says, you need to realise Assyria is coming. Their king at the time, a guy with the really snappy name of Tiglath-Pileser III. Yes, Tiglath-Pileser. That family got it wrong, not once, not twice, but three times. They named three boys Tiglath-Pileser. What a shocking name. Anyway, he was the emperor and he was marching down with 300,000 men, chariots, horses, war machine to wipe out anyone in the way. And between Assyria and Judah was Israel and Aram. The kings there, they decided they would join forces and they would oppose Assyria. They would attack Tiglath-Pileser the 3rd and make him Tiglath-Pileser the last. Except that is a bit like New Zealand and Tonga saying, come on China, we're going to beat you. Really? No. Your spirit may be willing, but let me tell you, New Zealand plus Tonga, the only thing you're going to beat China in is probably rugby. You are never going to overtake them. Tigmath Pileser, wants a clear run down the coast and he will get it. He sends a message through to Ahaz in Judah. And he says, look, I've heard about your neighbours to the north. They're going to try and join forces and fight me. They'll get wiped out. Tell you what, you pay me a tribute, a tax. I'll look after you. Isaiah goes into the king and says, don't listen to him. Listen to God. God has promised to take care of you. Why would you trust a guy with a name like Tiglath for a start. Really? But King Ahaz does. He doesn't trust God. And it's really interesting, in chapter 7, Isaiah says, give up all the alliances, trust wholly in the Lord. And verse 9 of chapter 7 is a cracker. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. We'll come back to that verse too. Well, Ahaz He didn't trust God. So Isaiah turned to the people and he went to the people and he started announcing, as only prophets in the ancient world could, who will you choose? Will you follow Ahaz and die or will you follow God and live? Which way will you go? Pause. It's like a Netflix show, isn't it? We're just about to end this episode and you think, oh, what's going to happen? Will the people follow Ahaz or will they turn to God? What's going to happen? And you see down the bottom, eight seconds for the next episode. Well, here it comes. The people made the same disastrous response as Ahaz the king. They rejected God's help. They preferred to trust in Tiglath-Pileser III. They rejected the clear message from Isaiah. They chose to walk in darkness. Chaos doom, gloom and death because the Assyrians never kept their promise. They never protected anyone. Google them. You'll see that they are the most barbarous, savage warriors in ancient history. The things that they did make your, the hairs on your neck just stand up. And as Isaiah chapter 8 ends, Isaiah says to the people who have chosen to ignore God, you have nothing but darkness and fearful gloom. You will be thrust into utter darkness. But to the people who walked in darkness, there came a great light. Devastation will give way to glory. The first light of hope will shine And then Isaiah lists the places where hope will first become clear. Zebulun, Naphtali, if that's how you pronounce it, in Galilee of the nations beyond the Jordan. You know why they're the first places that are mentioned? Because that's where Assyria first came down and wrought destruction. They'll be the first ones to see the light. And in case you didn't pick up about Zebulun and Naphtali, you probably recognise Galilee, right? Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, near Jerusalem, but grew up in Galilee, of the nations. And then Isaiah says, a child will be born, a son will be given, the government will be on his shoulders, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you're familiar with that, right? We're going to sing it in carols and things over the next few weeks. Probably too many times, but here's the thing, do you know what it means? Do you know what it means to be wonderful? Because the word for wonderful, when you look at what it really means in the Old Testament, it means miraculous, the worker of miracles, someone to be marvelled at, someone who is awesome. Counselor is not someone that, who sits down and goes, tell me how you feel. That, that may be modern day counselors, but this counselor is actually a strategist, someone who makes plans and who brings plans to being a mighty God, an everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Shalom. And here's the cracker with that Prince of Peace. That is the one who establishes, according to that in Hebrew anyway, covenant relationship. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign for forever. Who will it be? Who could it possibly be? The next king is born after Ahaz is a guy named Hezekiah. Again, cruel parents. Hezekiah, what a name. But Hezekiah was a good king. But no matter how good he was, he was not the strategist that would save the nation. He was not a worker of miracles that you could call him wonderful. He wasn't a god. No Jewish person would ever say a man was. So who could it be? By the time of John the Baptist, another prophet, as we heard in our reading tonight, he turned up. He wasn't the light. He was bearing testimony to the light. He pointed out the one who is the light when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed at Jesus. He pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the one who is the mighty counselor, the wonderful God, the everlasting Father. Jesus is the one who gives light into darkness and gloom. Jesus is the one who defeats even death. For when Jesus was nailed to a cross, he surrendered to death. He experienced physical death. Was put in a tomb. But after three days he was alive again. Not not Reincarnated and not resuscitated. He was resurrected, alive again. He's beaten death. The greatest shadow that hangs over us is death, and Jesus Christ has conquered it. He is the light of the world. He is the one to turn to and trust. He is the one that the people being baptized and confirmed want to follow for the rest of their life. He is the only one who can help us out of darkness. Have you seen the light? Have you seen the light? Maybe when you tell people, I've seen the light, that they just laugh at you. But like my friend who was flying that plane, like Tony Bullimore, who was caught under the darkness of that hole, if you really know what darkness really is, when you get a glimpse of light, you run to it. Is that how you treat Jesus? seems to me a lot of people just treat him just a bit too ordinarily. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. If you've drifted a bit from him, then make tonight a night where you come back to him. Watch the example that we're going to be given. Come back, repent, change. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the invitation that you give that still stands, for your patience, your mercy and your grace that we you will wait for us to come. And I pray that as we see who Jesus really is, the light of the world, that we might come into the light and walk with him forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world.
2: We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatt's.org.au, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.